I'm turning today to the first letter of Peter, chapter 1 and verse 3. 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And our subject is the life of anticipation. And in this very long sentence, which in the original runs through verses 1 to 5, to be followed from verse 6 on by an even longer sentence, Peter writes in very long sentences, but necessarily so, our modern versions tend to use too much punctuation, and perhaps that takes a little from the running theme and the point of the whole, how one thought fits into another and so belongs to it. We were looking at verse 3 and continuing with this verse from a previous study. I pick up halfway through the verse, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope. And our first heading is going to be the duty of anticipation of heavenly glory. There's so much lost to the Christian believer if we do not frequently meditate and think about the coming heavenly glory, the duty and its fruits. So first of all, the duty. And we look at these great words. Hath begotten us again, well, we considered that, caused us to be born again, to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, regenerated and born anew, unto, or until, towards, a lively hope. For hope, read anticipation. That is the meaning of the Greek word translated here, hope. Anticipation or expectation. When we read hope, well, the meaning of the word has broadened out too much in modern times, and hope can be a long shot, a distant hope, a mere possibility for which we hope. But the word here intended in the Greek New Testament is a lively anticipation or expectation. It is about something definite to us and clear in our minds. And uh, we think of the illustration of a will. And you have been left something in a will. You've been assured of it. A very large sum of money. Or perhaps it's uh, a distant aunt who happened to be extremely rich. And there is some estate left to you. You've never seen it. You've never visited. But you hear and you know that this is left to you. So it is certain you are named in that will, but you haven't yet possessed it. You haven't yet seen it. It's something of a mystery to you. But that's the idea here. Hath caused us to be born again to the possession of 
a lively, that means active, living, an active anticipation. So the challenge is, do we possess an active expectation or anticipation of eternal glory? Now the answer may be, well, not very much of an expectation. I live the Christian life from day to day. I believe I'm saved. I came to him. I've tasted and known the power of God. My life has been changed. I love now spiritual things. I hate my sin and fight against it. I've had much guidance and many blessings, but I have to confess, perhaps we say this, I don't think much of eternal glory. Well, I do think much of it, but I don't think about it very much. I don't ever purposely reflect on it. I am not active in this. If I get a grievous disappointment, a difficulty, a hardship, an illness, a loss, well, I'm heavy and uh, depressed and sad, and I do not set against that, weigh against that, the blessings that God has given to me. Eternal life and eternal glory. And I don't reflect upon these things so that my present material losses are enormous and make an impact on my well-being and pull me down because I'm not a reflecting, thinking person keeping in mind the greatness of the inheritance which is mine. That's going to be the drift of the passage, a call to living, lively, in our King James Version, active anticipation or expectation of eternal glory. It's so important. It fuels assurance. It cheers the heart. It provides motives for everything we do for Christ. It provides enabling power to get through difficult times and there are many grievous disappointments in life. This expectation. So here it is. He's caused us in verse 3 to be born again unto an active anticipation by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It involves every part of me, this. My mind... Sometimes I reflect on this. I must. I pause and stop when I come to scriptures that speak of eternal life, such as the one we're going to be looking at. I apply my mind. What will it be like? What do we learn about it? What do I know about it? In this passage, as we shall see, the heavenly glory is described entirely in negative terms. The Apostle Peter loves triplets. And there'll be a triplet here in the verses before us of three great negatives. What heaven is not. What is not there. And they are tremendous negatives. But it's understandable. There aren't many positives revealed in the scripture. What will it be like? I remember when uh, the uh, uh, 
great uh, scientist Christian who wrote so marvelously on creation themes, uh, Dr. Henry Morris in his lifetime. I remember when he was here with us once many years ago and he ventured to suggest that in heaven all his scientific longings would be marvelously fulfilled and you'd be able to tour the galaxies and explore and do wonderful things and see things unseen. Well, we naturally asked him, what biblical evidence do you have for that? And he replied, absolutely none. We don't know exactly what will prevail. We can only marvel and wonder, knowing this, that it'll be far greater, far more expansive, far more marvelous than anything we could possibly imagine. There isn't a lot of information on the positives for this very reason. The human mind would be unable to take it in. And here's an example where the glories of heaven are described in negatives. There are symbols, but their meaning is up to the imagination. And yet we are to reflect and marvel. Even the negatives are astonishing, as we shall see. A living, a lively hope, an active anticipation by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our thinking begins with the resurrection. This is a very cumbersome statement, and you can see that Peter means it to be cumbersome, deliberately. He doesn't say, by the resurrection of Christ. He says, very ponderously, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Well, that is obvious, but it's deliberate. From the dead. He was dead. Death is final. The body is still. Life has gone. It will breathe no more. Those eyes will not open. That body will not emit a word. It is dead. And you know that. There is no hope of life. Christ died. He died on a cross in agony, bearing away the penalty of our sins. The spear was thrust through his side to make absolutely certain and to establish that he was dead. He was buried in a tomb. It was final. The disciples, before they realized fully the meaning and the sense, were shaken to the core and so despondent and shattered and broken, Christ was dead. But he rose by his own power and by God's affirming word, he rose from the dead. So the statement is deliberately cumbersome. Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our forerunner, to prove, of course, 
that he had the power of life. To prove that his suffering and death on Calvary was entirely successful and all the sin of his dear people had been borne away. But to provide a demonstration. Up to this point, we had heard of resurrection and eternal life, but now it's seen in Christ. It's demonstrated. Think about that, says Peter. This comes by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This anticipation. He rose. We should be more like the Russians, the Russian Christians, that is, who developed the habit of using as a greeting the words, He is risen. Christ is risen. Always on their lips, always reminding themselves who they were, who they served, who they belonged to, who was their saviour and their helper and their ever-present friend. Christ is risen. Perhaps we ought to do more of that, at least in our minds. Christ is risen. Because this active anticipation starts with reflecting on the resurrection of Christ and keeping it close to your heart and keeping it dear to you. Who do I belong to? Who do I serve? Who is my Lord and my guide and my helper? Christ, who is risen from the finality of death to demonstrate that one day at his coming there will be a resurrection body in eternity in a glorified eternal realm for all who belong to him. So we're speaking about this lively, active anticipation. First of all, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Look at verse 4. To an inheritance. An inheritance. We've used the illustration already, but that's what it is. What is an inheritance? Something you are left in a will. In a will, you are named. Your name needs to be there so that it's legally established that whatever is mentioned in that will is for you specifically. The name had better be accurate and right. We had an experience many, many years ago in this church where money was left in a will to Spurgeon's Tabernacle. Well, said the lawyers, which Spurgeon's Tabernacle? I won't tell you the outcome of that, but the name better be precise. Or it could be that that legacy goes to somebody else. And it's the same with this. You have an inheritance if you're a believer, Christ died for you and you are named in the Lamb's book of life. Your name is there for this inheritance. It's certain. But with an inheritance, you don't necessarily know 
How much? There may be other people named in that will. You may, as I mentioned the possibility before, never have seen what the will names, a property. Maybe in another part of the country or overseas. You've only heard about it. You've never seen it. Well, that's like our expectation of heaven. You are named. You are going to inherit eternal life. Life and glory. Yes, but you've not seen it. You only hear certain terms describing it and its wonders and its communion with God and its praise and its glory. But you've never actually set eyes upon it. So it is when the will is read out, then and only then will you know the full value. Or when you visit the property, if it's a property, then and only then will you marvel and say, I never knew this relative of mine was so well-to-do and had so much and what it, where it was and its beauty and its marvels. I had no idea. And it's like that with heaven. What is going to be unfolded to us is astonishing. The Apostle Peter here will call it salvation. That confuses us at first because by salvation we tend to mean when we were first saved. But he also calls the day of the return of Christ and the unveiling of the eternal future heavenly glory and the receiving of resurrection bodies, he calls that our salvation. Is it confusing? Well, no, because the word means rescue. That's the meaning of salvation. Rescue, deliverance. Well, you think of the Jews of old. They were saved, rescued, delivered from slavery in, in Egypt. And they left the land of bondage by the mighty power of God and they were delivered into liberty in the wilderness. And it was wonderful by comparison with Egypt, free from their taskmasters, free from the cruelty, free from the hard labor, free from all the indignities and the cruelty, but they were yet only in the wilderness. There'd be an even greater deliverance or rescue, in a sense, when they left the wilderness and entered into the promised land, the land of Canaan. And it's the same with us. We are delivered when we're saved. We're delivered from the sentence of condemnation, the sentence of eternal death. We're delivered from the inevitability of sin. Though we are still sinners and struggling with sin, we are delivered from its inevitability and from hopelessness. We're delivered from ignorance. We're delivered from purposelessness and futility. But the full deliverance, the final salvation, is when we're delivered from mortality itself and brought into immortality and life. When we see, 
when we're delivered into the presence of God from the presence of this world and all its contamination and its disappointment and its cruelty and evil. We're in a wilderness at the moment. Luther put it like this. He said, we're in the lobby of heaven. We're delivered from being outside in the cold, exposed to the wildest of beasts. We're in the lobby. What comfort, what fellowship, what happiness, what tokens of heaven. But we're only in the lobby and at death and finally at the return of Christ and the final consummation, we come in to the palace itself and the full liberty of the children of God. So it's quite right for the Apostle Peter under inspiration to use the term liberty, salvation, freedom, rescue for entering into heaven, as well as for the experience of conversion. So look at the words again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us, caused us to be born again, unto an active anticipation, a lively hope, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance, an inheritance. You don't buy an inheritance, it's given to you freely. You don't earn an inheritance, it's given to you freely. So many things about an inheritance which correspond to the receiving of eternal life at the end of time. But look at the three negatives here. Verse 4, incorruptible, undefiled, and that fadeth not away. And they're all distinctive, those three negatives. Incorruption, incorruptible means imperishable. No, nothing decays, says the hymn writer, change and decay in all around I see. That's being in this world. No change, no decay, nothing ever spoils. There's no failure, there's no erosion, there's no rotting away, there's no fainting, wearying, dying. Nothing is imperishable in the eternal glory. So it's a tremendous negative. Just reflect. Go home, dear friends, and reflect. How many ways can I describe a realm that is imperishable? When everything perishes around me and within me, bodily, death itself, how many things can I list which will never change, never perish? in the eternal glory. It's a profound and mighty thought. You think of this, your heart is assured, your problems shrink and diminish, your disappointments are seen in perspective. Dear friends, these are the words we want. Imperishable, incorruptible, and undefiled. That's different. Nothing spoils in the eternal glory. Nothing 
defiles. There's no blemish, there's no unhappiness to spoil it. The happiest day you ever experience, something happens somehow along the line. No unhappiness in the eternal glory. There's no pride. There's no selfishness to blemish it. There's no temper. No hostility. No lies. No deceit. Nothing at all to spoil eternal heavenly glory. It couldn't survive in the light of the presence of Almighty God. There's no envy, there's no selfishness, there's no pain to blemish and to spoil. There are no tears, there are no partings, there's no loss. Just think of all the negatives you can think of. We start out by saying, three negatives? Is that all? They're marvellous negatives, dear friends. Incorruptible, undefiled, and that fadeth not away. Is it possible that you could enter heavenly glory and you could see things, well, the Lord Jesus Christ in all his glory that we never imagined and dreamed of, his greatness and power and majesty and wisdom, his kindness, his love, these attributes become visible in Christ in eternal glory and they are so radiant, we're overwhelmed and astonished and we drink it in a million times greater than the most beautiful thing we ever saw on earth. But on earth, you have a beautiful sight out of your window and you marvel at it. Perhaps you go on holiday to some spectacular place. It's a good thing you're only there for a week or a fortnight because you can get up every morning and see the sunrise over the most spectacular landscape and it catches your whole being, and you marvel. Good thing you're only there for a fortnight, because after six months you'll be completely taking it for granted. And after a year, you don't think anything of it, just don't at times. You look and you say, this is a wonderful privilege to have this view. And after five years, you're going to shake your heads at this, but I tell you it's true. After five years, you'll be longing for the city centre again. And the skyscrapers all around you, and the overcast skies and the smoke. You tire, even of beauty. But in the heavenly glory, forever and forever, eternally, your sense of wonder and marvel and appreciation will never be diminished because nothing fades away. These terms are tremendous, friends, and we could almost feast on them 
to an inheritance. You're named in the Lamb's book, his will, incorruptible, imperishable, undefiled, incapable of any blemish, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. The King James translators probably thought long translating this word reserved because it isn't actually the word in the Greek. The word in the Greek is watched, guarded, watched like a sentry watches. This inheritance is under guard. It's being watched. It's being kept completely safe for you. It will be undiminished when the time comes to inherit. I think actually it's brilliant that the King James translators did not translate it watched, but translated the sense reserved, reserved, intact and safe. They've hit the point with a little interpretation. But that is the point. Why? You've got an inheritance on this earth. But by the time you come to inherit it, it's barely there. Because those investments failed. They didn't work out. It didn't keep up with inflation for some reason or other. And what was a huge inheritance was really quite a small one. By the time you came to inherit it, not this one, watched, guarded by Almighty God so that you receive it perfectly, 100% eternally, all the promises of God and the scripture when you receive the inheritance. That's the sense to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved, watched and guarded in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God. Verse 5, through faith unto salvation, this rescue this final rescue when you go from the lobby into the palace, ready to be revealed. Revealed translates a Greek word which means uncovered, the cover taken off so that you see, ready to be revealed in the last time. It cannot even be described to you. It is so magnificent and wonderful, the presence of God, the presence of Christ, the fellowship of all God's people, to have to be rescued from a limited understanding into eternal glory, where you and I all have the power to understand all things and take in things that will be on the greatest intellect on earth. 
wherein, verse 6, ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, only for a time. You're not here for long, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness, sorrow, through manifold, that means various temptations, trials, so many trials, some very difficult trials, longings of the heart for things which are wholesome and wonderful and right, but they do not seem to be for you in the providence of God. But there are longings of the heart and then grief and sickness and trial and tragedy and disappointment and betrayal and some form of persecution or disadvantage. All these things. Various trials. Why does God allow them? Verse 7 that the testing, the trial of your faith being much more precious, I must come to conclusion, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire. It's more precious than the purest gold, is what Peter says. This is gold which has been tried in the furnace and tested so that the impurities come to the surface and are purged. It's tried and tested and proved gold, the purest and the most valuable, yet your faith is more precious, far more precious than that. Why? Because gold will perish in the last day, it will all be destroyed. And the new heavens and the new earth will have a different kind of gold. Totally reconstituted and remade. It's only temporary, it's only for now. But faith, and it's not really your faith, it's the gift of God to you. Your faith, when exercised, takes you to eternal glory. Of course it's more precious than gold. has infinitely greater currency. It appropriates or secures for you heaven and glory and eternal life. It's much better. And gold is heavy and cumbersome. If you have a lot of it, you can't carry it about. It's a burden in its way. And it is in many real ways. But faith, my burden is light, says the Lord. Faith, you can take it anywhere. God has given to you. You possess it. It's light. It's in your hands. It's in your heart. It's in your head. And you trust God. Trust is light and mobile and goes anywhere. It's much better than gold. And gold can and will be stolen. 
But nobody can steal your faith. Nobody can take away your trust in God. It may sometimes not be exercised. It may sometimes be diminished. But you always have it. It's kept by the power of God. And you can trust him. And live for him. And live this life of anticipation in eternal glory. Faith is infinitely more precious than even the very best gold. That your faith might be found, seen to be, unto praise and honour and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Your faith might be proved like Job's faith was proved. Satan said, Job doesn't trust you for nothing. That's what he said to God. Satan said, Job only trusts you because of what he can get out of you and the good things you give him and the good life you've given him. Take it away. He won't trust you. Said Satan, in effect, there's no such thing as real faith. And he opposes God and he challenges God and he accuses God of monstrous dishonesty, claiming that people trust him and love him when he's brought them to know him. When they don't, faith is phony, says Satan. So God said to Satan, very singular thing this, take away his peace, his family, his happiness, his riches. And Job was left without anything. Yes, he said some pretty unworthy things. He was tested to the limit, but he never ceased to trust in God and address him and cling to him and appeal to him. And it was proved to Satan, you're wrong. I have given Job genuine faith and trust in me, which will survive all your onslaughts. And that's what Peter has in mind here. What are all the trials for? That before Satan and the angels, the bad angels and the good angels who never doubted, and before the world, it may be proved and established beyond all doubt that your trust in God is genuine because you never let go of him. And you think of the future and you think of eternity and you think of his promises that your faith may be found out to be sound and good. These are the words, verse 7, that the testing of your faith, being much more precious than of gold, even the best gold, might be found unto praise and honour and glory. And I take that both ways. When you enter the palace of the king, there will be praise for you. Oh, but I never deserved it. There will be praise for your faith. 
Oh, but that wasn't mine. It was given to me by God in his kindness in the first place. Maybe so, but there'll still be praise for your faith and honor and glory. And it will redound to Christ and the Father also at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So, live the life, dear friends, of anticipation and expectation of eternal glory and reflect often that it makes such a difference to our Christian lives.